Hi, I'm Mike James, and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to episode 42 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm Fabio Molly, your host. I'd like to say I hope you're all safe out there and healthy and that you're getting some fresh air and exercise in during this isolation period. This week, we speak to strategy coach and tennis data analytics expert, Mike James. Mike tells us all about data and tennis analytics, how it works in the senior game, in juniors, and it's a really interesting episode. My background or my university degree is in software engineering. So I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with technology, data, coding. So for me, this was a really interesting guest to have on the show. I asked them some great questions. Well, I thought they were great, but I really think you're going to enjoy this podcast. It's something a bit different, but it's really where tennis is moving forward more data, more research into numbers. And yeah, I think you learned something. So hope you enjoy the show. After you finish listening to the episode, I'd appreciate if you could open up your podcast app and leave us a review. We're trying to grow our reviews on the podcast and every review we get makes a big difference. So we'd really appreciate it if you could do that. Okay, let's listen to Mike. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Fabio, thank you for having me. Great to have you on. Can't wait to find out about your great work. But first of all, tell me, how are you dealing with the current situation? Well, uh, taking one day at a time. I think every day at the moment feels like a month. First and foremost, I'm healthy. My family's healthy. And um, from, a, from a tennis tour point of view, obviously the tour's officially now been suspended until June the 8th. I think um, the reality is it's probably going to be a lot further ahead before we get any tennis played this year and I think it's a, an evolving situation currently so every day there seems to be a little bit of new information coming out there about what potentially could happen what the calendar could look like tournaments moving venues uh, even one tournament talking about moving to a different country so I don't know what they would call that tournament <laughs> so yeah one day at a time but uh, trying to stay positive and, and, and using this time to learn I think that's so important at the moment while I have a lot of time on my hands trying to learn and uh, and make a better version of myself for when we come out of this situation. Tell me that's not Wimbledon trying to change country down to Australia is it? So I heard Rome we're talking about uh, they they were happy to change country and change surface, which made me think, well, it's not the Faro Italico anymore. So it was a bit of an interesting comment from them. And the, uh, the positivity I like, but um, once we start doing that, it, it's going to be a crazy calendar. Yeah, I, I, I don't know when the tennis season is going to be back. I don't want to say because I have no idea, but I don't think it's going to be June, especially if things ramp up in the States. And I still think in the UK, it's going to get pretty serious over there. Uh, I did see that this won't air for a few weeks, but Mr. Boris had came down with COVID himself, which is which is not good. But yeah, I don't know. I'd say it'd be at least September if we're lucky, is my opinion. But look, let's hopefully it's sooner than that and things go back to normal. Absolutely. And I think what could be exciting for tennis fans is obviously the French Open moved to the last week of September, first week of October. 
And can you imagine if we had, you know, two Grand Slams, Master Series and an absolutely packed calendar from September and no off-season and gave the, the tennis fans week-in, week-out coverage? I think that's everybody, including the players, would be happy because they could earn money. And I think that's very important in this time. Tennis is different to, to a team sport, uh, soccer, uh, rugby union, whereas the tennis players are only earning when they're playing. So if they're not playing, you know, it's going to be a, a tough road ahead for some players. Oh, no, definitely. It's, life is going to be really tough for them. I see even the soccer players, I know they earn atrocious amounts of money, but the likes of Barcelona are looking at 70% wage cuts, a lot of the UK teams, wage cuts. So yeah, I think there's going to be wage cuts for everybody. It's it's only fair and to, in order to keep businesses running. But tell me, what are you learning? So what's your plans for the next few weeks or months? Any interesting tennis topics that you're going to be learning? Yeah, I think the plan for me at the moment is to, I'm looking to create a lot of online content for, for people out there to view and to look at. I think I've been fortunate enough now to work with uh, a couple of top 100 players on the men's side, um, some good doubles players. And I have a lot of, a lot of information sat on my computers, uh, match reports, uh, videos of matches, maybe three or four hundred matches now, I think, professional matches. So I want to use this time and utilize this time to actually create really good quality content for people to, to view and look at and give information that I've been taking on board and passing it on to people. I look forward to seeing some of that. You'll, you'll have enough time to work on it, I hope. But Mike, let's tell everybody, what exactly is your job title, job role? I know we discussed it beforehand and you say, your job is about getting the job done. But what exactly is the job that you're a specialist in? Yeah, so I think if we go back a little bit, first and foremost, I'm a tennis coach. I've been operating as a tennis coach for 18 years. Uh, I like to describe my journey as as tots to tour. So I started right at the development end of the game in tennis clubs, working with juniors, adults, and working my way through to being head coaches of some academies in, in the Midlands and, and up north in the UK. Eventually, when I, if you like, broke into starting working with professional players, I didn't play professional tennis. So I was looking at a, at a tour, at a something that I could hang my hat on, that I could get the message over to tennis players that are playing professional tennis. So that tour was video analysis. Uh, to begin with. And then I started to move into recording uh, matches, uh, match tagging from Dartfish, and then building match reports and custom-made key performance indicators that I felt were important. And eventually now, essentially my full-time role for this season has been working with Team Kekmanovic, Mirmir Kekmanovic and the team, Mira Havertan and, and the team there. And essentially, I suppose, if you were to pin me down to say, what is my job title? I would describe myself as a as a strategy coach or a, a data analyst. So it's a bit of both, really. I, I, my, my tool is uh, numbers and video, but, but ultimately I'm using that from a coach's background. Interesting, very interesting. And tell me, what would be a day for you? So I know we're sort of the day now is completely different, but a, a normal, you're with team, uh, you're with Miramar's team. What does a typical practice day look like for you? Brilliant question. And I think, again, I've been on both sides of the, uh, the fence as a traveling coach for the last five years. Obviously, my role now looks totally different. So the first and foremost, which is a positive, 
is the fact that my role generally is quite remote, so I can work from home. As long as I have Wi-Fi and I have the computer uh, fully charged, I can work from home, which is a massive plus point because I've just had a, uh, my first uh, child. She's six weeks old now. So she's keeping Thank you. She's keeping me busy at the moment. So essentially, what I'm in a day in, day out would be with, with, with Misha, we call him Misha, is that um, I would be looking at, if he's playing a tournament, I would be scouting his, his potential opponents, giving feedback and content to the team about what I'm looking at for the opponents and also looking at his game and looking at the, at the development and the, and the numbers and, and breaking everything down to basically help the development of one, him as a player and then two, helping them on the match court. Okay, so there's a lot going on there. Yeah, there is. First of all, how do you scout a player? So Miramar is playing Karina Busta tomorrow. So what does your scouting job involve there? Absolutely. So I'll, I'll give you a better example. So I was at the Doha 250 back in January. Uh, his first round was uh, against Jordan Thompson. And that was scheduled, I believe, that was the night match on the Monday. The draw came out Saturday at 6 p.m. So, unlike the rest of the team, as soon as the draw comes out on, at 6 p.m. on Saturday, I'm back in the hotel room and I'm uh, match tagging. I'm collecting the data that I already have on Jordan Thompson and I'm putting together a scouting report for the team to view on the Sunday morning. So then on the practice court uh, for Sunday and Monday morning, they can have a good idea of what they expect on Monday and they have just adds to their game plan, basically. So the key part is the scouting report. So I compile match report data, video content, and then break it all down into some video highlights, some very simple video highlights of effective strategy from what Misha could do to the opponent, but also what I feel the opponent is very, very good at as well. So to show their their strengths. And then in the scouting report, email it over, have a little team discussion, and then and then my job is done for Monday. But I'm also then looking for the second round opponent. So I'm already, you know, it's not a day off on Sunday for me or Monday. Those two days, I'm actually already working on the second round opponent. And do you have all the video and storage and the information? Where do you get that information from? Yeah, brilliant. So essentially, we collect the video and we have collected the video now for the last 18 months. I set up a, an analytics company by, uh, beginning of last year, Sportai Analytics, and I have a great team of analysts that are working with me now that are coding matches, tagging matches, at WTA, ATP, doubles and singles, because ultimately, we need the data and the video to be able to do our job quickly, because obviously, if we don't have video and data, it's a slow process because you can't get around physically having to watch the match back and, and tag the match. So obviously it takes time. And you want our sort of KPIs of at least four matches from the previous, that the player has played previously. And we, we look, let's say Misha has not played that player. So we look for similar game styles and similar surfaces and conditions. Of course, you cannot get it perfect. It's always better if Misha has played the player before because you've, and also if he's played them multiple times, because then you have more of a blueprint, you know, going into that match. Of course, things can change. Tennis is not a video game. Things can change, but tennis subconsciously is a game of repeatable patterns and patterns happen over and over again. And you cannot see that 
watching the match live. You can see that when you break the match down. So you might see a player hitting eight forehand winners down the line, okay? But when do they do that in the match? What is the score? There's all these different permissives that are, that make the, the situation important or less important, if that makes sense. So, you know, we, we have to go down a route sometimes where, what do we hang our hat on today for this, for this player and this game style and these conditions? And some, and that changes from match to match, tournament to tournament, because tennis isn't played with on different surfaces, different balls, different conditions, different game styles. So it's a really tough sport to do this in. You know, if you think about soccer, rugby, NFL, they've been doing scouting and, and analytics and, and this sort of stuff for, for many, many years. Tennis, it's just starting to happen. Uh, it's not foolproof yet. It still needs a lot of work. But it does make a difference. I can only imagine it. it does make a difference. How many players actually in the top 100 do you reckon have a data analyst or strategy coach? Well, it's an interesting, yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting one because we know some guys out there that are well known that are doing it. There are some guys that are hidden away in, in rooms that the player pays a salary to that the player never credits. And then there's some guys like me that are in between. You know, I've worked with some players that I, you know, I can't talk about and some players that I can talk about. So it's an interesting one for tennis because in soccer, for example, you know, you can, everybody's very aware that like Liverpool, for example, I think they've been having live analytics delivered to Jurgen Klopp this season. He's been literally getting information up in the box this season. I don't know how common that is in soccer, but I read that report and was like, yeah, that makes total sense. Why wouldn't you do that? Where you can change tactics, you know, minute by minute. In tennis, it seems to be a growing trend of people being open that they're using data, they're using strategy support and video. Okay. Well, the most famous one I know is Craig O'Shockensee. Yes, sure. Yeah, I obviously worked with Novak. He was with Berrettini back end of last year and... And Craig's probably the pioneer for this and uh, he's definitely been an inspiration for me. And I think for me, the job I am doing is the job that the, the head coach could do. It's just a matter of time. You know, the head coach has so many different things to focus on for the player, taking care of the player's schedule, uh, on-court content, uh, getting them mentally in the right frame of mind. So I'm just coming in and cutting away time and giving them information that they can dissect extremely quickly and they can get on with everything uh, very well. I know matches, the length of matches like a piece of string, could be an hour, could be four or five hours, but on average, let's say a 90 minute match, so two tight, two tight sets, how long would that take to tag? Myself, I'm, I'd like to think I'm pretty competent of doing it now and, and the guys that we've got working for Sport Eye, they are... If the match is two hours, they're, they're taking two hours to, to code the match. So uh, we're fortunate that, that there's a lot of performance analysis degrees in the UK universities. And we've been picking up some great analysts coming out of university that have studied a degree in performance analysis. So we've really got a high level of coders, of, of taggers you know, operating for us at the moment, which is, which is great. And do you just have some software that the video runs through and as the play happens, tag, 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 tag? Yeah, so so we're using Dartfish. Dartfish, around eight or, eight or nine years ago now, came up with a tagging panel. The beauty with, with Dartfish, and I, I'm selling Dartfish a lot here, but is that the tagging panel is totally custom made. So uh, you could get two different analysts jumping on Dartfish and, and their tagging panels look slightly different because 
it's totally a blank canvas when you start with it. So I'd like to think the tagging panel I've got at the moment is pretty robust and pretty competent. And I've been fortunate enough to back end of 2018, I worked with um, Magnus Norman and helped him out with his pre-season content with Standard and then helped them through 2019 a little bit for scouting and picking Magnus's brains, picking Miro's brains, um, other top coaches. I'd like to think that what we are doing is is at the top of the sport. You were working with Magnus there for uh, Stan Vavrinka. You just said Stan. Yeah, okay, great. And you were doing the same sort of work for him, was it? No, I mean, with Magnus, it was a bit of a support mechanism. What he was looking for was Stan was coming back from his knee injury. I believe I want to say June June 18, he came back from his knee injury. And Magnus initially, we met at the US Open through Claudia Pistolesi, who's another great coach. I'd like to talk about him later for sure. And um, basically, Magnus said, look, can you can you look at Stan's game before his knee injury and after his knee injury? And can you find any things that are that are different? And uh, and, and I flew to Magnus's academy in Stockholm in, in November of, of 2018 and, put, and was, um, to say the least, was pretty, pretty nervous sitting in his academy in his boardroom presenting uh, about his player that's won three Grand Slams <laughs> and one of the best players in the last 15 years and, and showing him what the differences were. And I've got to say, he was amazing and really made me feel comfortable in presenting the information. And tell me, are you allowed to say what differences you found? I think, though, generically, I will do. I think there was elements of, of court position changes, uh, things on return things on, on, on serve. They were the three main areas which gave uh, Magnus and the team a boost going into the pre-season and some confidence. So again, you know, I took lots and lots of data, lots and lots of matches, and I will create videos of, of positive, if you like, and, and let's say negative videos so you can the player can visually see. And I think I've now been specializing in, in video numbers and strategy, particularly the last three years. And the player, they almost never want to see the match report. Our match reports are 22 pages worth of information. What they do want to see is the video. They want to see the video. They want to go, show me my court position on the final shot. Show me, am I blocking or driving the return? Where is it landing? What's my situation in ball four? You know, how effective is my serve, wide serve on the juice? So, you know, the player just wants to see the video and, and see the proof, if you like. But that gives them the boost themselves, you know, and gives the whole team a, a lift sometimes. I, I can only imagine having access to this information is unbelievable. And tell me, I am aware of some a couple of companies out there, I don't know their names now offhand, but where they sell information, they sell match information. What is the difference to those guys and your company? Is their information more generic? Yeah, I mean, are you talking about companies like, I mean, can I say the company's name? Are you talking about the ones on TV that you see the graphs, Hawkeye? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure of the company name now, but you can say it far away, yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's a good question. So, WTA have the, the SAP, the SAP uh, login where they see the data and information, which is really, really good. And the ATP have the Hawkeye reports, which the players can either buy, you know, under the Masters 1000 level, or then is posted on the player's own. So the, the match reports that the players get are very robust. They are in some ways more detailed than ours because Hawkeye, for example, is a laser system. So it's recording like ball speed, uh, ball flight path, the height of the ball, things that we cannot do as a human, but it's not connected to the video. 
So the players get the, the match report and they can't link it to the video. That's the big thing for what we are doing. We're taking everything that our match reports are showing the player. They can literally dive into the match and click on, you know, last shot forehand down the line and they can see how many times they did it. They can see how effective they were, how many points they won. Was it, did it set them up in a good situation? Was it the right choice of shot? You know, they can go into that side of things. And that's the key part of it, really. Just the data and just seeing numbers on a screen at the end of a set can be very, very misleading unless you see the video. That's a good point you make there. But maybe it's not those companies, you it's not the main companies you mentioned, it's other companies who they would buy that information from, uh, let's say, Hawkeye, and then they put the video on it and then they sell it to the players. That's from what I gathered. That's what it was. Now, you may know more than this than me. Yeah, there are other analytics companies out there. There's some, there's some great companies out there that are, that are working with, with professional players. You know, everyone's doing their own thing. Everyone's a little bit secretive, if I'm honest, at the moment. Again, the industry in this area is still very primitive within tennis, and I can only see it growing. I think if you look at the next-gen finals, I think, from my point of view, that is great for tennis to have, uh, for the player to have, the live uh, stats on there for the coaches you know for the coaching team to have the live stats to be able to be up to date with the court position and, and all the percentages but what i really like with the atp cup they took it a, a stage further and had this strategy room where they could get the team in a room filter all of the the information and, and go through essentially what i saw in the atp cup is what i am doing individually with players you know, they had the filter system, they had the video, the numbers, and they were in there and they were reviewing the matches and then they were building and, and, and look and scouting opponents. Okay. Do you feel your job in jeopardy ever when you see the ATP are taking that side of things to a new level where it's all in-house and the players can go directly there? That's a great question. I never, never thought of it too much like that. What I would say is, if you're talking about some companies that are that are providing the information for um, for WTA ATP, they are still, people don't realise this, they see the graphs on the TV and it looks very fancy, but they're still 50% human coded. So the laser system that's on the court, on the on the pro court, is obviously taking ball speeds, it's taking flight paths, these sort of things, but there's still 50% of the data that a human is doing in the box live at the stadium. So the point in that is, if a player plays in Indian Wells, he's having... You know, John, the analyst um, for the company, coding 50% of his match. And he goes to Indian Wells and he's got a totally different analyst coding at Indian Wells. So, and that interpretation of the data now is going to be already skewed. So the reason when I come in, I'm working with, with, with top 100 players. They know they're getting me coding the matches and physically inputting the data. And I think that's probably where I'm different to everybody else. I'm not getting other people doing the, the coding. I'm doing it myself and it's giving, you know, my KPIs are my KPIs. So rightly or wrongly, you know, what I'm standing for in different situations, but it's, it's consistent. And that's the most important thing. You put in bad data, you get in, you get out bad data. So it's got to be consistent. That, that's really, really important. That was the next question I was actually lining up for you was like the <laughs> inconsistencies with different people tagging matches. So, you know, what is an unforced error? What's a forced error? There's different opinions mm. of that. And you can see match stats, which we've seen on TV, which haven't made sense really. Like, oh, there's been no enforced errors some days. Well, 
they were seen. But when somebody else tagging it, there was six unforced errors. So it's it, it's hard to get it right. So that consistency, yes, does make a, a big difference, especially at the margins that these players play at. Absolutely. I, I remember watching a, a player that I was potentially working with in New York Qualies last year. And at the end of the match, it said that the, both players hit zero winners. And I knew that I watched the match live, so I knew that wasn't the case. But obviously, if you're a fan and you're, and you're logging onto your app and you see crikey, there's no there's no uh, winners there, and then maybe you, you screenshot it, you post it on Twitter, and then somebody else takes it, and you you know it can all of a sudden become uh, this match had no winners, and, and there's a bit of a story, and that's not the, that's not true. So, but ultimately, at some point, whether it happens in two weeks or two years or, or twenty years, it will all be automated. You know, computers will work out smart court technology. There's a massive amount of investment in smart court technology at the moment. And the holy grail, and nobody's yet got that, is to be able to, it's a bit like if you imagine the, the laser on a self-driving car when they pick up the pedestrian walking out of the road and the car breaks. You know, the, the, the laser on the car sees the human form and knows the distance. You need the smart court technology to eventually be able to pick up, you know, is the player, how much time does the player have in between contact to contact? You know, how, how stressed are they physically? You know, are they on the full run? Are they set? Do they have time? So the smart court technology at the moment doesn't have all of those things. So that's why it's still best to have humans committing to that and seeing those different things. You know, is the player in attack neutral defense? Is it a forced error or unforced error? So I'll give you an example. When I started coding stands matches for, for when I met with Magnus, um, when I'd previously coded on ball three, uh, the player in defense, if players that I was working with at futures and challenges level were going backwards after ball three, you know, and they were really going backwards, they're always in defense. You know, they, they didn't have the quality to get out of that shot. Stan can be going backwards, full defense and still produce a forced error <laughs> on the other side of the net, you know, so. You have to know the level that you're working with and get used to, okay, this is the level I'm now coding and this is what I'm seeing. And then there's always another level where, you know, uh, Misha's last match was against Nadal and I'd never actually coded anything of Nadal up until that point because none of the players I was working with at, at face Rafa, the guy is superhuman. The guy is doing stuff that uh, is like a video game. If you look at the ATP Tour highlight reel for Rafa's last match in Acapulco against, uh, not his last match, but against uh, Misha, it's, it's three minutes of, uh, of, of highlight reels of, of shots where he's playing the ball behind him on the full stretch, down the line, you know, everything. It's just crazy. So, you know, th- but that's not happening at challenger level, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, but they won't be there if it is. They won't be there long. Absolutely. This podcast is brought to you by ASICS Tennis. ASICS is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever. Get the new Cord FF3 Novak or Gel Resolution 9 at ASICS.com. ASICS Tennis have also just launched their new Cord FF3 Novak, the only tennis shoe designed with Novak Djokovic input. To learn more about ASICS, visit their website www.asics.com. So tell me, that stuff's not happening at challenge level, but what should players be looking out for in stats? Let's say not the top 100 guys, players below that level. If you were to work with them, what is it you're going to say that's really important with them to help them break through? Brilliant question. First of all, obviously, hypothetically speaking, 
the things that I'm seeing that are different is the ability to serve accurate, you know, close to the lines or powerful. You know, what is the player doing regards to the serve? What is the player doing on the amount of returns in play? I tend to see the lower the levels, the less returns in play are happening on first serve particularly. Court position is, is hugely important. And, you know, famously, it's been talked about 70% of the matches, zero to four. The numbers I get out with my players, it's very rarely 70% that I'm seeing with the players that I'm working with, unless they're playing a John Isner, Stroff, yeah, a Kevin Anderson, I'm seeing 70% plus. But, you know, there's about a 10% difference, let's say, on that one. But ball three and ball four is still massively important because the match is, is won or lost in the zero to four zone. So, you know, how passive or creative is the player on ball three, ball four? What situation are they in? You know, are they in a situation where they can dominate the rally after that or finish the rally on ball three or ball four? You know, it's a bit of a tough question to answer without having the player, the case study in front of me. What I like, what I'm doing. And, and how I'm presenting with, with players that I work with when I work with an academy, when I work with an individual is I'm very keen on sitting down with a conditioning coach, the psychologist, the head coach, the physio and coming together and having a holistic approach. And I want to know what the conditioning coach's thoughts are on the player's movement and how I can help them with looking for different situations in movement that I can ex- exploit and show the conditioning coach to then feedback to the player. Or, you know, in between the points, you know, creating highlights of, of the body language of the player, the positive or, se- or, or negative self-talk. So for me, it's not just about numbers and video, which I talked about earlier. It's about bringing the team together and, and we're in 2020 now. So even as we're getting lower down the, the, the ladder, the top players that are playing challenger, if you like, uh, the top players that are playing doubles, juniors, they are starting to create teams around them and it's so important, that communication. I can't stress that enough. So with my role, you know, I, even though, you know, Misha knows I'm in the team and, and, and Antti Pavic knows I'm in the team, the doubles player, my goal and job is to put everything and run all the information to the head coach, the conditioning coach, psychologist, whoever's in the team. I'm not going direct to the player because if I start doing that, you're going to get a breakdown of communication and the relationship and the information, particular information, is not going to be um, passed on in the best possible way because the head coach is with that player every single day. So the, the head coach is going to know the best way to communicate the information that I'm presenting. Yeah, no, look, that makes that makes sense. It's a bit like a business as well. I know people need to talk, but all the information will go through the team leader. Who I, well, I never know on, a, on if the team leader is the player or the coach. You never know which one that is. Yeah, that's important. But a question... Do you tag any junior matches? So our, our junior data at the moment is limited. We are tagging uh, juniors at Tennis Europe's and ITF's. I'm really excited about delving into to junior development and looking at the correlation between the junior development and the senior information. The, the information that's limited at the moment that, that's available, the, the numbers are not changing that much. What I am interested in is... What, because again, the zero to four, five to eight plus nine gets chucked around so much now, it's been lost in translation and people are confused about it. So what I'm interested in is the stress levels of players and what happens to the rally zones, court positions, ball speeds, decision makings when stress gets put into 
you know, the match. So what I mean by that is, is what happens at break point? Does the average rally length go up when you're facing break points? What's your decision making like when you're at 30 old four all? And these things from a professional point of view, I'm getting a good amount of information. The juniors I'm fascinated with because in baseball, um, I don't know whether you ever, Fabio, watched the film Moneyball. I have watched bits of it. I haven't watched it all now, but I've heard great things about it. Yeah. So essentially that was the guy got in a data analyst. I can't remember the date. I think it's 2003, four, And they put together from data all the, the rejects, if you like, from the draft. And they made a very good team and they, and they punched above their weight. But what baseball are doing now in the last five years, they're taking the data and they're delving into junior development and they're trying to predict and plan uh, the draft five or six years ahead whereas they were not doing that before. And I think in tennis, I really am interested in doing that. Of course, it has to be done ethically and correctly and not to scare people off. And I still think, as I said before, the tennis community is not ready for massive amount of information yet and not understanding it, and it's still very new. But I think, wouldn't it be amazing to be able to steepen the learning curve for 14, 15-year-olds um, and keep them on the, on the, the right path? For you know, because you know that you've got video and data to back it up of what happens in the match, you know. So I think it's it's really really interesting the the, the junior side of it. I think it can make a massive advantage for them, but it must come down to a cost as well. There's not that much money in the in the junior game. There's not that much in the senior game if you're outside the top hundred. But for the juniors, I'm sure it's is it going to be a case of the rich have access to all this information, which aren't normally the best players. I mean, my, my opinion, and I'd love someone to do this, and I don't know how you would do this, but if you look at, again, I go back to, to football or soccer, if you look at the, the Premier League table, it's virtually like for like on money spent and position finished in the league table. So Manchester City spend the most money, they finish first, okay? Maybe not this season, but they, that's a different story. In tennis, I believe the same. I believe when the player is having a heavy amount of investment, whether that's from the family, private sponsor, academy, federation, they have a better chance of making it. It's as simple as that. The more money invested in the player, the better chance they have of, of reaching their goals, their ranking, and, and making it in an exclamation mark of whatever you define as making it. Um, but I believe, I'd love to see the top 100 rankings today and someone to find about the, the budgets that these players had from wherever the money came from and to see how close it correlates to ranking. That would be an amazing study. Well, it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. I don't know how to best describe it, but obviously the better you do, then the more money you have to spend on these things. So good point. that advantage gets bigger and bigger. So it's whether you can get a bit of a kickstart. You know, all of a sudden you're 200 in the world, but you can travel with a physio, a strength coach, and then you can get a bit of work with you. All of a sudden you have that advantage from early on, but most of the, most of people who with those services don't get them until they're top 80, top 60, top 50. Obviously, I'm sure the likes of Federer, Novak, Andy Murray, Nadal, they had those from a bit beforehand, but they rose so quick, they didn't even see this happening. Uh, and that, You're absolutely right, Fabio, and I think there's no getting around tennis costs a lot of money. I think, uh, I think it's $40,000 for the player to do a full schedule in costs. So you add on a coach, well, it's virtually the same cost for the coach. So there's another $40,000. That's before paying them a penny in wages. So the unfortunate thing, if you look at any individual sport, you look at horse riding, gymnastics, uh, golf, tennis, you know, boxing, they're expensive. 
okay, there's, there's all, all relative, you know, boxing maybe is not as expensive as tennis, but particularly as take tennis and golf, you know, to make money, you can't just play in your own country. You have to travel uh, the globe. Hey, now maybe in this current situation, maybe the tours have to look at a, a golf style European tour, Asia tour, American tour moving forwards to, to survive in the next couple of years. Uh, that's just my opinion. But, you know, there's no getting around. It does take massive investment. And I, I've, you know, got countless stories of people remortgaging homes, selling cars, do what, doing what they need to do to fund tournament travel and trips. And, and unfortunately, that is the sport. Um, whereas in soccer, you get signed by a, a Premier League team at 11 and 12, and, and the family can literally sit back and relax as long as the son or daughter is is producing the goods because everything is paid for them. Yeah, no, the soccer is a totally different ball game. So so many players do well out of soccer. Absolutely. That some young kids doing really well, where even they may not get paid a lot at the start, but then their parents are sorted out with jobs or they're relocated to a nice new house in the new city that they're in. So yes, soccer is just a different ball game completely. But no, no, that information is really interesting and it's good to see tennis from that angle. I think that you're doing a great job there. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it, Fabio. And I think what I'm excited about with this is that we are not nowhere near the pinnacle of using video and data yet in tennis. I think that's, that's for sure. If you look at something like NFL, you know, that has been using data massively for years and years and years. And again, I'll go back to the next gen. Um, some of the players were wearing the, the catapult, uh, heart monitors. I think there's a lot of devices and, and that device particularly will be great for knowing, um, the micro steps and the heat maps of the players of what they're moving on the court, the energy they're expending in calories, their sweat rates. There's so many things moving forward with sports science and technology that, that it's going to come into tennis. And some people are scared of that because they like the way tennis is. But I would embrace that because ultimately, um, people's attention spans are getting shorter and shorter. So the idea of the next gen format, which is obviously, uh, the class four format, I think is going to come in. We're going to, I think tennis is going to be a little bit more like the cricket where you got in here, you know, the one day internationals, the IPL, this sort of stuff. I can see that happening in tennis for sure in the next five to 10 years because you can watch a, a next gen match and they've played, you know, best of five sets to four, but it's been an hour 25. And for the new modern generation, that's that attention span they can accept. <laughs> they can't accept John Isner, uh, Nicholas Mahu, uh, 11 and a half hours. <laughs> no, definitely not. But I would, speaking of all your stats there, I'd love to get a breakdown on the Wimbledon final last year when Federer had his opportunity. I'd love to get the heart rate of both players there and compare it and see exactly because I think for me that's one thing that's missing on TV I think it's up to the TV companies now this information this rich data is available I think they should be displaying it much better they should have people they have look Amazon have the best commentators some great commentators working there and they should be able to interpret it really well and then show some nice graphics of deeper down some trends going on but for me the one thing I always wanted was heart rate on the players you can tell exactly what's going on you know like all of a sudden he's match point up the heart rate's at like 170 or and or you can see okay it's not it's Rafa or it's Novak probably he's three match points down he's shown like 95 beats for for per minute there but I I know there's GDPR issues and all these privacy issues so that's another that's another problem absolutely uh, but I think that's going back to what we were talking about earlier with the stress levels related to score 
when you see coaches talking about pre-point routine, post-point routine, and talking about breathing control, uh, ultimately the breathing control is to do what? It's to calm the player down. How is the player going to get calm with controlling their breathing? Their heart rate's going to go down. So you're absolutely right. I mean, what, what a tool that would be for a coach to see is their breathing control and their routines actually working? And, and, and that would, that would be a big data uh, plus point. Yeah, no, I, I agree that they're really important. And to the experience, obviously, if you've been down there before, down match points against Federer before, you know you've come out of it. So I think you're going to be a little bit, just a little bit more relaxed. Or even if, if, if you've won, <laughs> it's like all the guys talk about winning, entering the top 100. That last match to enter the top 100 can take a while because there's so much pressure on themselves to break through. And then all of a sudden you do it once and then the next, obviously you're in the top 100. It's a lot easier then. So there's all these, it's experience, it comes down to experience helps reduce the heart rate un, probably until you get really old then. And then you figure out it's your last chance and you're like, no, <laughs> I've been here a load of times. I know this might not happen again and the heart rate's back up. So That's great. If we if we used uh, these heart rate monitors for uh, recreational tennis players as well, that was, uh, but I think the thing is with whatever you see in professional tennis, eventually it filters down to the junior game and to a recreational game. So, you know, we're the only sport at the moment that doesn't allow on-court coaching. I'm talking about men's game particularly. And there's been a huge debate in the men's game of, of, of how that is produced. And again, I love the next-gen setup, the headset, you know, listen to the play, the talk. Um, I know last year they were told that they had to speak in English. Some of the players basically ignored that advice and carried on in their own language but most of them adhered to it. And what an amazing spectacle for the, 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 the fans and the TV audience to be able to witness that heated conversation and how much the coaches can get across and what the player's thinking. I know Federer's comments about that was, you know, he wasn't uh, a fan of that happening because he said, well, I pay, you know, I want the best team in the world um, to tell me advice and information and I don't want sharing it with everybody else, which I get. <laughs> I understand that. But I think for the spectator sport and being fan-friendly, I think it has to come in, that sort of thing. But Federer, he doesn't have to say anything during the match. Obviously, nothing said at the moment, so nothing has to change for him. He can say, okay, well, I'm not into this. I don't need, you know, we do a pre-match plan. I have my backup plan and that's it. So I think, yes, this should. it's great. It'd be great to have. And if you don't like it, you just don't say anything. And that's the end of that. And you'll probably learn from the other guys then what's going on. Because Federer, I'm sure he's probably more intelligent than most of the players out there. And when things don't go his way, when things change, he can probably realize why they're changing. They're just out of his control. But some players maybe don't know why a certain point in the match, something changed. Do the player change tactic and they can't really see it? So it that's why it's good to have this information. Absolutely. And I, and I think... Not every player wants this information. Not every player buys into this information. I think, I'm at, and I'm so I'm very comfortable with that. What I do say is the next generation of players, and I don't just mean the next gen final players, but the players that are coming through, you know, like Misha, he was born 99. He's very interested in numbers, data, video. Look at the next generation. They are all on their phones so much. You know, when you're traveling with, with juniors or uh, trips in between tournaments, they are on the phone, the social media. So why not interact with them that way, where you interact with them remotely and you can capture their attention, I think, better with video and numbers moving forward. So I think the next generation is going to be using this 
a lot more because they, they want to. <laughs> and tell me a quick question before this be the last question. You mentioned Catapult and Catapult is a GPS tracking system. It's a bit like there's a few companies actually in Ireland that do this. Stat Sports is one of them. And the Stat Sports ones are used by all the rugby teams, Barcelona, a lot of football teams. But I went to buy a kit off Wonder. I'm not sure which company before they did more. They did, as you say, this technology has come down to now. The amateur players can use it. But for tennis, it wasn't friendly, mainly because it would only calculate outdoor. It wouldn't work indoors. One, are all the systems like that? And two, if you buy a catapult, which you can buy, I think it's about £150 to buy a catapult, which isn't that expensive in the grand scheme of things. And will that work indoor and outdoor? And is is it advantageous for a junior to go out and buy a kit? Can he learn anything from that? Okay, uh, amazing question. And first of all, can I confirm, I do not know, my my, uh, my knowledge on catapult is limited. What I do know is catapult is striving for exactly what you just said, to be able to pick up the small micro-movements of players. When you think of a soccer player, they're sprinting a lot and they're sprinting in longer distances and changing direction less than tennis players. So that's been the holy grail. I believe Catapult have sold it. Please don't quote me on that, but I believe they sold it because they were using it at the next-gen finals back in November for the first time. And I've got a couple of friends that have been testing their software and I think that they are, they are, they're either solved it or they are very close to solving it. But again, like you say, all these companies are fighting for that, that, uh, to be the first ones to land on the moon, if you like. Yeah. No, I think it's a hot area right now. And I used to have some friends who play five aside and they'd have their Apple watch out and they're like, today I ran like eight kilometers playing five aside in an hour. And I'm like, no, you did not. These, the GPS trackers in these devices are not made for sharp movements. They're made more for broader linear activities and the information they got was all wrong. So I always want to get my own catapult, let's say, and do it properly now. I stopped playing soccer a while ago, so I never got around to it. But I think if you get a device for tennis, it would be amazing. Absolutely. I think, you know, the wave is coming, whether we like it or not. Uh, I'm not talking about coronavirus there. I'm talking about uh, smart court technology and wearable technology is inevitable in tennis in the next five years. But I'm super excited about that. I think it's going to take the sport. We talk about Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, uh, Murray, uh, Stan. Tennis can't get any better than what they're playing. I believe that's not true. I believe we will see higher levels in the future because of this this technology. Yeah, well, hopefully. Maybe Murray's the man, Andy Murray's the man to ask. He's been wearing those vests for a couple of years now, so he's probably testing. Mike, thank you very much for jumping on the show. I, I learned loads there, which is great. So hopefully our listeners picked up a lot. Tell me, where can they find you online? Yeah, so you can find me online. Please feel free to reach out uh, to me on uh, on Instagram or Twitter at Mike James Sports. And my analytics company is Sporteye with three eyes analytics. So please feel free to follow us and, uh, and, and contact me. I'm always interested in uh, conversations with the, the wider tennis community. Great, Mike. Thank you very much. Cheers, Fabio. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed that episode. I was intrigued by all the data analytics stuff and I thought it was really interesting. So thank you very much, Mike. I'll be back next week with another podcast episode. And until then, keep safe, guys. Try to get some fresh air and a little bit of exercise in. Bye. Bye.